Hey everyone, just a quick reminder that this weekend, June 21st and 22nd, is the Haunted America Conference in Alton, Illinois. This is the place to be if you're into the paranormal, true crime, or you just want to hang out with some people who are also into some strange stuff like you. There's going to be speakers, after hours events, vendors, and I'll be there recording ghost stories, and it's just going to be an awesome time. I have more fun every single year. The doors open at 4 at the Best Western Premier Hotel. You can learn more at ghostconference.net, and if you're there and you listen to the show, come by say hi let's talk let's get a drink let's hang out i hope to see you there and now on with the show welcome to another episode of american hauntings the podcast dedicated to the history hauntings legends and lore of america's past The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and we are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the new season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest of the early 1900s. Each episode will not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but will explore the effect that he had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Aliska, Iowa. So lock the doors, hide the oil lamp, and get ready for the next installment of Murdered in Their Beds. During the summer of 1914, when Agent 33, also known as James Wilkerson, was starting to wreak havoc in Iowa, things were not going well for some of the principals in the Moore murder case. Our weird little friend, Reverend Kelly, was getting into more hot water that summer. He'd already been arrested in South Dakota earlier that year, charged with using the U.S. mail to try and entice a teenage girl to pose nude for him as inspiration for a religious book that he was writing. Oh boy. He was later transferred to a federal mental asylum in Washington, D.C. for evaluation. Interest in Kelly's connection to the Velisca murders was renewed, mostly due to his behavior while jailed in South Dakota. He not only spoke frequently about the murders, both to the jailers and to other prisoners, but he also implied that he was responsible for them. On at least one occasion, he told a guard that he'd actually committed them. According to the statement of a cellmate, an Indian named Baptiste takes the knife. Kelly groped and made attempts to perform oral sex on other inmates. He also ranted, begged to be killed, and one report claimed that he attempted suicide. Sheriff Jackson was contacted and he made the trip from Red Oak to South Dakota, accompanied by County Attorney Ratcliffe. Both men sat down with Kelly and once again ended the interview, believing he was definitely an oddball, but he was not the killer. Regardless, word reached the newspapers that Kelly had made incriminating statements in jail and that Jackson and Ratcliffe had looked into them. Several reporters pursued the story and published articles that included some of the circumstances that made Kelly a suspect in the first place. The result was that while at the asylum in Washington, Kelly and his doctors consented to an interview. This time, the minister emphatically denied any involvement in the murders and his doctors seemed to agree that he hadn't committed them. Kelly said that he had witnesses who could account for his whereabouts at the time of the murders, he didn't, and that he wouldn't have killed anyone. Doctors at the asylum are quoted as saying that Kelly had a violent temper, but they doubted that he was capable of the slayings of Aliska. 
Kelly told the undoubtedly bemused reporters that he had become a target of the investigation because, well, he was a detective himself, had looked into the crime, and had developed his own theories. Because some of his insightful theories were so close to the mark, the real killer was trying to frame him. Kelly ended up being unhappy with the press coverage his interview received. He thought the stories made him look like a lunatic. And well, if the shoe fits. He ended up spending a few months being evaluated at the asylum before his doctors released him, believing him to be harmless. He returned to preaching soon after his release. Because of his disturbed mental state at the time, the charges against him for using the mail to solicit the young woman were dismissed. Frank Jones took time that summer to write what was, I'm sure, a fascinating article about Iowa road law. The arrivals of automobiles in southwest Iowa had made good roads a priority. The problem at the time was the question of which agency was going to build and maintain them, where they could be located, and how would they be paid for. The statute established the State Highway Commission in 1904 and gave some responsibilities to the state and others to counties and townships. The majority of voters were unhappy with how the law was working and felt the state should not play a role in building roads. They wanted the law to be repealed. Jones thought the law could be fixed with some of the amendments that he had in mind and wanted to let the voters know what they were. He would eventually be successful in getting the amendments enacted and was later recognized by the governor for his work on the new plan. The issue, though, was a divisive one and upset both the local citizens and many career politicians. County Attorney Ratcliffe decided not to seek re-election that fall and instead started preparing for a run for Frank's Senate seat in 1916. It would be an election where new roads would become a major issue. The rest of the summer kept Frank busy with the implement store and with his responsibilities at the bank. He was unaware at the time that he would soon become the target of a smear campaign launched by James Wilkerson. As for Wilkerson, he spent several weeks that summer talking to people, refining his theory in the case, eliminating some alleged conspirators, and of course, adding others. He went about his work quietly and methodically, gaining supporters as time passed. A few were people who had always suspected that Frank Jones was in some way involved in the murders. Others just wanted to believe that someone, somehow, would finally get to the bottom of the mystery. More than two years had passed since the murders and other detectives have given up. Wilkerson said that he believed that the reason the murders were never solved was because officials had been bought off by Jones and they were covering it up. There was a segment of the population that believed what he had to say. These people were indignant that the wealthy senator thought that he could get away with murder. These were mostly uneducated poor folks who wanted to see someone once admired taken down. They saw Wilkerson as the man who would clean things up, never realizing that he was taking advantage of the gullible so that he could line his own corrupt pockets. And not much has changed since 1914, has it? But not everyone was fooled by Wilkerson. Many people knew and liked Frank Jones, and those who knew him best were disgusted and outraged by the allegations. The two factions were growing. One side wanted Wilkerson's work to continue, and the other felt Frank was being maliciously persecuted. There was a lot of unrest in the town over the case, and it was becoming harder and harder for people to remain neutral. Wilkerson had worked hard to implicate Jones in the crime, mixing and matching the various rumors to build a somewhat coherent, if improbable, case against Jones. He tried to put the murder weapon in the hands of a particular person, but that had not worked out well. Frank Jones was the mastermind, he believed. All his conspiracy lacked was one small thing, an actual murderer, 
But then another major axe slaying occurred that summer, the final crime that could be connected to Billy the Axe Man. On July 5th, Jacob Mislick, his wife Mary, daughter Martha, and her infant daughter Marie were murdered in their beds in a small community called Blue Island, located just south of Chicago. Initial speculation linked Martha's estranged husband, William Mansfield, to the murder. However, police investigated Mansfield's whereabouts at the time and found that he'd been working in a Milwaukee packing house when the killer struck. But Wilkerson was not so easily satisfied. He visited the scene and reported that the Blue Island and Villisca cases were nearly identical. And they were. However, from that point on, he insisted that Mansfield was the perpetrator of both crimes, having been hired by Frank Jones to do away with J.B. Moore. It was an outrageous claim, but one that refuses to go away more than a century later. More than two years passed between the murders in Villisca and the slaughter that occurred in Blue Island in 1914. It was the longest period of time between murders during the spree that was perpetrated by the killer that we've been calling Billy the Axe Man. For some reason, the murders in Blue Island have been largely ignored by historians with an interest in the Midwest axe murders and by those who have researched the Villisca case. Most likely, it was the propaganda spread by Wilkerson that caused this case to be overlooked. Wilkerson would forever maintain that it was William Mansfield who murdered his estranged wife, her baby, and his in-laws, despite the fact that he was elsewhere at the time and was cleared by the authorities for any involvement in the crime. It was true that Mansfield had an unsavory reputation and he had been involved in other crimes and treated his wife badly, but he was not, as far as it has ever been proven, a murderer. I believe that the Mislick murders may have been the final set of murders carried out by Billy the Axe Man. What happened to him afterwards? Did he die or was he the man who walked into a police station and confessed to the murders a year later? Could the man who was arrested and locked up in a mental asylum have been the same man who had murdered dozens of innocent people and struck fear into the hearts of Midwest residents over a three-year period? Let's take a closer look at the crime. Blue Island, located south of Chicago in Cook County, was a working class community in 1914. The city took its name from a large hill that was once an island during the last ice age. Early pioneers gave the ridge the name because at a distance it looked like an island set in a trackless prairie sea. Established in the 1830s, the town was originally a way station for settlers traveling on the Vincennes Trace from Indiana. It prospered since it was conveniently situated less than a day's journey from Chicago. In the 1840s, it enjoyed notable growth during the construction of the feeder canal, now the Calumet Sag Channel, for the Illinois and Michigan Canal, and as a center for the brick-making industry. In the 1850s, Blue Island became known as the brick-making capital of the world. In the early years, the bricks were made by hand and created mostly for local use. But by 1866, the Illinois Press Brick Company began employing about 80 men and using what was described as steam power and machinery to produce about 50,000 bricks per day. By 1900, the Clifton Brickyard alone, which had opened in 1883, was producing 150 million bricks every year. It was still a thriving industry in 1914 and a major part of Blue Island's economy. 
Businesses, hotels, and restaurants flocked to the town, eager to reap the dollars that were being made by Blue Island's residents. The town's central business district was regarded as one of the most important commercial centers south of Chicago. With stores like Woolworths, Klein's Department Store, Sears, and Montgomery Ward, there were always plenty of places to shop. Until Prohibition put them out of business in 1919, Blue Island was home to several breweries that used the east side of the hill from which Blue Island took its name as a place to store their products before the advent of artificial refrigeration. Beginning in 1883, Blue Island became the home to the car shops of the Rock Island Railroad. Even today, it's a busy hub for railroad lines running into Chicago and beyond. The main railroad tracks in Blue Island were just one block from the house where the Mislick family was slain. On July 5, 1914, a Sunday night, our killer stepped off a freight train in Blue Island and left a bloody scene behind with four victims wiping out an entire family. Jacob Mislick, age 75, his 65-year-old wife, Mary, their daughter, Margaret, age 22, and her six-month-old daughter, Marie, were slain as they slept in their beds at the Mislick home at 67 Broadway in Blue Island. The murders were eerily similar to the others that had occurred across the Midwest over the previous three years, a fact that was actually pointed out by the newspapers. No clues had been left behind in the house except for the bloody axe, which had been used to crush the skulls of the family members. The axe had been left in the bedroom where the two women and the infant slept. It was covered in blood and had been taken from a neighbor's backyard and brought into the house by the killer. After slaying each of the victims with the flat side of the axe, he had pulled the bed sheets up over the bodies, hiding them from view, just as he had in all the other cases. The bodies were discovered by Mislick's son, Jacob Mislick Jr., who entered the house on Monday morning. The younger Mislick also lived in Blue Island and was at work on the railroad line near the house that morning. He walked over to his parents' home around 10 a.m. to get a pail of water. The back door was partially open and he pushed it open the rest of the way. Darkness lay beyond. He called out to his mother several times. When he received no reply, he walked inside. The first thing that he noticed was the gloom of the house. All of the window curtains had been pulled closed and the blinds were down. He called out again as he walked through the kitchen. After a few steps, he entered the main part of the house and noticed that his feet were sticking to the floor. He looked down and was startled to see a trail of blood ran from a bedroom off the kitchen to the front hall. It was too dark to see where the trail came to an end. His heart pounding, he pushed open the door to the bedroom. There were several forms under the bloody sheet on the bed. The walls had been spattered with blood and pools of it congealed on the floor. A few steps away, the blood-soaked axe was lying on the wooden floorboards. Jacob walked slowly to the edge of the bed. He later told the newspapers, quote, I pulled back a part of the bed sheet and there lay my mother, her head cut and bleeding. I pulled the sheet back a little further and saw the body of my little niece. Her head had been severed. Beside her lay my sister. She too was dead. I then ran into the street and called several passerby who accompanied me upstairs where my father slept. He too was dead, having been killed in the same manner as the others. Several people who knew Jacob's parents were outside. They followed him back into the house and helped him search the place. His father had been sleeping upstairs in what the newspapers called the attic, but it was actually part of the second floor with a slanted ceiling. The Mislick house was not large and the family was not well off, but they were on good terms with their neighbors and were liked by the other German Americans in Blue Island. There was no indication that the doors had been forced open. Instead, the police surmised that the killer had entered and departed through an open window where bloody handprints were found on the sill. 
The police arrived to investigate the scene. Lieutenant William Miller of the Blue Island Police took charge. His first thought was to look for Margaret's estranged husband, William Mansfield, who had a police record. Lieutenant Miller was initially the only one who suspected Mansfield. The newspapers were shouting that the degenerate axe murderer had struck again, claiming more innocent lives. The Mislick murders were immediately connected to not only the Velisca murders, but to the earlier cases in Colorado, Pallet, Kansas, Ellsworth, and Monmouth. And newspaper reporters looking for a sensational story were not the only ones who believed the transient butcher was still at work. Chicago Assistant Chief of Police Herman Schutler, a well-known and experienced officer who'd been involved in the famous Lutgert murder case in 1897, was a strong proponent of the idea that all the murders were connected. He was quoted in the newspaper on July 7th stating that, quote, the mad axeman whose trail of tragedy runs through five states has reached the outskirts of Chicago. Captain Schutler was quick to add that the Mislick case, like nearly all the others, occurred on a Sunday night. He also publicized the belief that the killings had taken place when the moon was passing from the last quarter into the dark or emerging into the first quarter. This would come up again in the future when Schutler named a possible suspect. The case rapidly went nowhere. On July 7th, Chicago police arrested a suspect named Peter Buchanow, who had escaped from an insane asylum in Kankakee, Illinois. A bulletin had been issued about his escape from the asylum before the murders had taken place. He was picked up by two police detectives at a boarding house at 4333 South Hermitage Avenue. When they searched his room, they found a bundle of clothing and some shoes that looked as though they had bloodstains on them. The detectives both thought of the Mislick murders, which the assistant chief of police stated had been committed by a madman, and brought Buchanow in for questioning. He was eventually cleared. Even though he had passed through Blue Island by train on the night of the murders, Buchanow was able to provide an alibi. He had been staying with a farmer who'd been kind enough to offer him a meal and a place to sleep. This left only William Mansfield, whom Lieutenant Miller considered his prime suspect. Mansfield was an unsavory character, to say the least. He had twice joined the military and had twice deserted. He'd done time in Leavenworth, and after he was paroled, had moved to Chicago, where he met Margaret Mislick. He was working in a meatpacking plant as a sausage stuffer. Although he was courting Margaret, he was also seeing a woman who worked in the plant named Kate Romanofsky. Both women became pregnant around the same time. He married Margaret, but just as he had done with the military, he quickly abandoned her. Shortly before Margaret's baby was born, he and a very pregnant Kate left town together. A few months later, his wife, their baby, and her parents were slaughtered in their beds by someone wielding an axe. While Mansfield was a suspect in the crime, he really had no motive. Besides that, no one had seen him in Blue Island for months. He was eventually tracked down and was able to prove that he'd been working in Milwaukee at the time of the murders. The police lost interest in him and continued their investigation, an investigation that quickly became even colder. It would be a year before another suspect emerged. In July 1915, a man was arrested in Buffalo, New York, who confessed to the Mislik murders. His name was Kasimir Erzuszewski, a Polish immigrant who had boarded with the Mislik family. The Mislicks were poor, a situation made worse by the fact that William Mansfield had abandoned his family and the elderly couple were forced to support their daughter and granddaughter. To help with finances, they occasionally took in boarders. He was one of them. They soon began having problems with him. He acted very strange, and after making unwanted advances toward Margaret and failing to pay his rent, he was kicked out of the house. Air Suzuki dropped out of sight after that. 
He later told the police that he had roamed the country both before and after the murders, traveling by rail and drifting aimlessly. Then one day he walked into a police station in Buffalo and confessed to the Mislick murders. Two Chicago detectives and the mayor of Blue Island traveled to New York and brought him back, intent on learning if he was connected to the other axe murders that had been taking place since 1911. If he was, he never told them. He was judged to be insane and incompetent to stand trial. He was committed to a mental asylum in 1915, and after that, he vanished into history, leaving many unanswered questions in his wake, questions we'll investigate further later on in the season. Soon after the news of the Mislick murders broke, James Wilkerson traveled to Blue Island to examine the case. There was no denying that the murders were nearly identical to the crime in Villisca, as well as to the other axe murders. Even the crime scene was similar. The three women were killed in a downstairs bedroom and had been struck in the head two or three times with the head of an axe. Jacob Mislick was sleeping upstairs and was killed in the same manner. The axe had been left behind in the downstairs bedroom. The killer had entered the house by a window and had left the same way. All the curtains of the house had been pulled shut and all of the bodies had been covered with sheets. The only thing missing seemed to be an oil lamp with the glass chimney removed. Nothing like that was found in the house. While in Blue Island, Wilkerson learned about William Mansfield, who would later become a key piece in the case the detective was putting together. The police later dismissed him as a suspect, but Wilkerson refused to forget about him. Whether he had an alibi or not, Wilkerson knew that people would be quick to believe the worst about an army deserter, an adulterer, and a man who abandoned his family. He would make the perfect addition to the case that Wilkerson really wanted to build, a case against Frank Jones. When we return for our next episode, we'll dig deeper into the nefarious deeds that were carried out by James Wilkerson during his investigation into the Velisca murders, including his dubious work on another murder case that occurred in 1915. We'll be spiraling ever deeper into the dark events of that era, so be sure to keep your business to yourself so that you don't become a suspect in the Midwest axe murders, too. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards, I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. 
Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today, today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words come from? The other thing to consider, I'm sorry, I'm no, I, 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 I was about to move on to keep talking, right. but I had um, that question. All right, you good? Yep. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in season three, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, how are you? I'm good, man. It's been good. a while. Yeah, not too bad. So, yeah, a couple weeks, hasn't it? Yeah. So, actually, actually, it's been longer than that. It, ha- since we it has been. The last time. So, yeah, it's been a little while, but things have been very hectic, very busy. Yeah. Um, this, this week, Haunted America Conference in just a few days. So, I'm not going to tell you to go buy your tickets because you can't. Um, you can buy them at the door, but if you waited too long, you've waited too long. Yep. So we do have some spots left. If you're interested in getting some at the door, um, if you do not have your tickets already, I I don't know what's wrong with you, but whatever. <laughs> what are you doing? Anyway, uh, maybe you'll still come out and maybe you won't. Maybe you'll come next year. So that's okay. We're going to be good either way. We're going to have a blast. Yep. So I'm looking forward to it. We're excited about it. We have about a million and one things to do uh, still, uh, but we're getting there. It always comes so, together, yeah, right? It does. Absolutely. One way or another. I remember. Well, I mean, after 20, this is our 23rd year. So as I was, I was telling Cody when we were off the air that um, it's kind of like uh, check boxes at this point. You yeah. just have a list of things that has to be done. And uh, I, I had until just this past weekend had a lot of things that still needed to be done Mm -hmm. that had not been done. So now they're done. (laughs) So we're going to be good to go. Nice. I'm excited. Well, when we have more time, I'd love to talk to you about like the differences between the first conference and this conference. Oh yeah. It's night and day. It's night and day. I'll I'll tell you the very first year we did, I'll I'll make this story short because I'm one of those guys who likes to tell a story and extend the story and make it last for a really no, long time. No, ah, that's no, my no. Thing. So I'll try to make this quick, but the very first conference we did in 1997, um, I had a guy I knew who worked at a local newspaper who just put in like a, seriously, like a blurb. Um, it was a paragraph about the conference that we were doing because no one had ever heard of anything like that before. I yep. mean, this was a brand new idea. And uh, he thought, well, you know, what the hell? Let's, uh, I'll stick it on the AP wire. And put it on the AP wire. So I spent the two days prior to the conference doing phone calls from everywhere in the country 
Every every radio station. I mean, when before radio was completely dead, like it is now in 1997, there were still radio stations out there that were you know worth something. Yeah, and um, I, I had I just call after call after call after call and wanted you know to go on the air to talk about a ghost conference because no one had ever heard anything like that. I mean, I did every. I mean, coast to coast did radio shows for yeah. two solid days, really? nonstop calls with radio interviews. Um, oh, so I thought now you I don't do any. I thought you meant the show coast to coast. That was no, 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 no. I mean, no, I mean, no. That didn't even. I'm not, that didn't even exist yet. Right. Um, this was this was all over the country. Radio stations calling to talk to me about doing a ghost conference. All because of this blurb. Because of a blurb on of. the AP wire, they'd never heard of it and thought, well, this. Some of them thought this sounds really cool, and you know, the rest were like, this is the stupidest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. Let's see if we can find this guy. And um, yeah, that was that was surreal yeah you know um then we had a couple of uh, we had extra which was just starting out back then they came and recorded uh, at the conference and uh, there was a show called strange universe which was a lot like sightings and that kind of stuff yeah, yeah, back yeah. then you know unsolved mysteries that that kind of stuff right just starting to take off in the 90s in the wake of the x-files yeah and strange universe came out and did a segment uh, somewhere, uh, Oren, my son, still has all these videotapes of all of these shows that, you know, we had back in the 90s that had been on that we had recorded on VHS tapes. Oh, we got to find them. Uh, yeah, he's, he's got them. He's got them. We've shown them a couple of times uh, for a couple of things just for fun. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's got all that stuff. Yeah, it's That's pretty awesome. funny. So were you were you super were you because I know how you are now about interviews and things like that. <laughs> were you really stoked at the time to do uh, that? Yeah, well, it was exciting because there wasn't anything there. There wasn't anything like that. There were no there were no ghost TV shows. There mm-hmm. were no I mean, there wasn't anything. There was no travel channel. There was nothing. And that stuff didn't exist at the time. And so, you know, when there was a show that you did an interview on even radio, but especially these TV shows, it was it was pretty exciting because it was a new thing. Right. That was very new. So, yeah, yeah, it was was pretty cool. I mean, I never like to um, stroke your ego or give you compliments, but I mean, you really, (laughs) you really helped build this, (laughs) this community and this this thing. It's been, it's been fun. I mean, it's been a fun, you know, I guess this is the 26th year that I've been doing this for a living, if you want to call it that. (laughs) Um, so it's, yeah, it's just fun. I mean, it is a lot of fun. I, I really enjoy it. I haven't, I've never gotten tired of it after all this time. Yeah. I mean, I get tired of certain parts of, of course. it, but you know, aspects, but overall it's, it's a blast. Well, you make so. a joke about the living. I will say your place is very nice. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's the way you decorate. I don't know, but it's great. Um, where, where did the idea for the conference come from? Do you remember? Um, no, it was just, I, you know, yeah, I do actually. I had been involved in the early nineties, really late eighties, early nineties. Uh, I was really into like the Victorian era stuff and like Sherlock Holmes and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I had gone to, I want to say, I don't remember what year it was, but early nineties, I went to a Sherlock Holmes convention oh. in St. Louis. And, you know, it was, it was pretty much like what a ghost conference is. It's, yeah. it's a bunch of people, you know, a lot of vendors selling books and that kind of stuff. And, um, there were different speakers on different aspects of, um, Victorian era, spiritualism, Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, it'd be kind of cool if we could do this like for a ghost thing. So we should try it. And we just put the word out. I mean, the Internet was new. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I had put up a website late 95 
So, I mean, you know, we're a couple of, not even two years into having a website yeah. and decided to do it. And the internet was new enough. And there were so many people who were, you know, ghost people who now could, had someone to talk to outside of their area. Right. You know, I always credit the internet with changing the entire face of ghost hunting because there was, you know, in the past, outside of your specific area, there was no one to talk to about your interests. Right. Well, suddenly now you could reach anybody anywhere all over the world very easily. And, um, you know, the, the websites and stuff were pretty crude. They were, you know, very basic back then. But it was enough to start getting a hold of people and talking to people. And, you know, we had people who came from even that very first year came from all over the country because... They'd never heard of anything like that right. before. And here was a chance to so get together with their only refuge. Yeah, other ghost people. And I mean, it's still that way, you know, with the conference today. I think that, you know, in your while the paranormal is much more widely accepted than it used to be, you still may not have a lot of people that you know personally or, you know, around your town or your area that you can just talk about weird stuff. Right. You know, but so people come to the conference and they come back year after year after year after year because, um, you know, it's a place to meet, talk to like-minded people, you know? So it's a lot of fun. I think that's one of the things that makes it, it continues to make it so fun is these people who we see, you know, a lot of these people I only see once a year, you know, and a lot of them are, are, are really good friends, but I may only see them like once a year. Right. And that's always been one of the cool things about the conference is like a, you know, family reunion kind of thing and, and, you know, ghost stuff mixed in. So it's fun. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I remember my, my first conference was, uh, yeah, first episode, it either just came out or yeah. it was about to come out. I think out. it had just come out. Okay, so yeah. so five days we after pretty the first early episode. On, yeah. So I remember you told me, yeah, I come to this conference that we're doing. You know, you can set up a little table and stuff. And I had no idea what to expect. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what was going on. And I, I, got, a, I got there a, a little bit early. Um, I think I did, like at this point, I didn't leave work early or anything. Right, I just right, left right. at like five. Yeah. And uh, now I'm taking off like the whole yeah, thing for, yeah, for this yeah. stuff. But um, <laughs> I get there, set my stuff up, and then couple people started coming in like trickling in and then they kept coming in and kept coming in and, oh, kept, yeah. and it just didn't stop well for yeah the longest it's, it's time. because you know you get julie and the girls up there checking people in and but people are lined up for you know out through the yeah to the front door of the hotel it was and crazy it, and so then it seems like they're just trickling in but once they get into like the vendor's room it's like <laughs> mass chaos yes and it was it was awesome i was yeah. like what did i just sign up for yeah and like what yeah. am i getting myself into but i met some of the nicest people oh, yeah. some of the most absolutely. open-minded people yeah, they have absolutely. to be open-minded well, because yeah. they believe in crazy absolutely. shit absolutely right absolutely um, and we have yeah, you know great do. great times throughout the conference um great times you know after hours events and things yeah. like that so yeah. check it out uh, but enough about the conference. We yeah, have some yeah. other stuff. Yeah, coming yeah. Up. We've got other stuff coming up. Um, we still have uh, July Black Dahlia uh, dinner evening with. Um, the, we've got another Axeman evening with August 10th. That's pretty much the last one of the summer. Uh, but after the conference, um, the week after this, uh, we'll be releasing our lineup of all of our fall events. Uh, a lot of our ghost hunts, a lot of our events, our fall events in Alton. Uh, we'll have some more evening with events. We'll bring back Lizzie Borden again because that one's always full. Yeah. Always sells out. Um, we're planning on doing the Limp Family, St. Louis Exorcism. Uh, some other stuff, too. So nice. It'll be fun. Yeah. I haven't done I haven't done any ghost hunts or any evening with in a while now. So I'm actually yeah. feeling like I, I really want to do yeah, something. Yeah, we'll be doing again. We'll be back. at the, A lot of people have been asking me about the Mineral Springs again. And we'll be doing that uh, in October, early October. That'll get posted up next week, too. Nice. So, yeah. So, yeah, check out for uh, look out for that. And you can check 
websites and we'll yeah, oh, have yeah, it in, yeah. in the yeah, podcast. AmericanHauntings.net uh, will always have stuff up, all the new stuff. Awesome. So been something's been popping up lately um, <laughs> that you kind of want to, you feel passionately about, you want to talk well, about. Well, I just wanted to mention it um, because there had been some discussion after our couple episodes ago, we did um, the episode about the murders that took place in Kansas prior, just right before Velisca. Mm-hmm. And um, I had gotten a couple of different pronunciations of the town. Um, I'd had some people tell me, uh, and these were natives who mm-hmm. told me that it was pronounced Paola. And then I had some other natives who told me it was pronounced Paola. Yeah. So I went with Paola because my understanding from someone that I had spoken with there was that that was the original proper pronunciation. But over time, apparently it has changed to Paola. Now, and then when this, all these questions came up and we started to talk about it and I had a, actually had a historian from the area who told me, yeah, listen, um, it can go either way mm. because it originally was meant to be Paola, but over time it's changed. And just because it changed to Paola doesn't mean it's right. Right. That's just what people call it. And I said, well, that kind of makes sense because growing up in Illinois, we had a lot of towns that, you know, are not pronounced the way that they're spelled or how they were originally pronounced. Um, Wait, name, like name one. Cairo, Illinois. Oh, yeah. When they founded that one. town, it was meant to be Cairo. And over time, it's well, Southern Illinois. Over time, it's become Cairo. Yeah. And then there's uh, Vienna in Illinois, which is actually spelled V-I-E-N-N-A. Um, and it was originally meant to be Vienna, but over time, it's become known as Vienna. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't make it right. It just makes it, that's how it's pronounced the norm, yeah. now. Um, which always, when I was talking to Lisa about this, which reminded me about one of my favorite jokes. It was this guy yeah, and, and his go. wife who were driving around in California and they were on a road trip together and they, they were driving and they got to talking and they had come into a town and they said, well, how do you, you know, what do you, what do you think? How do you think this town is pronounced? And uh, the wife said, oh, well, she said it one way. And the husband said, that doesn't seem right. I mean, I think maybe it's it's this. And she said, well, I don't know. And so they got into kind of an argument about it. So finally, the husband said, but you know what? I got an idea. Let's just pull into this restaurant. We'll go in. We'll get a bite to eat. And we'll just ask somebody who lives here how you actually pronounce the name of this town. So they went into their uh, to just to stop at a fast food place. And they went inside. They ordered some burgers and and. He said to the girl behind the counter, he says, listen, we got a question where uh, we hope that you can settle this argument for us. And uh, the girl said, OK, well, you know, what is it? And he says, well, you know, we've been arguing about the, the way that the way you pronounce this place, because, um, you know, before they were inside, when they were in the car, the wife insisted the place was called La Jala. And the guy said, no, I don't think that's right. I think it's La Hala. So they went inside, they asked the girl, they said, listen, just tell us, we're not going to tell you who said what or, or what, what, our, what we think it is. We want you to tell us what is the name of this place. And the girl looked at him and went, um, Burger King. 
<sighs> that's the joke. Thank yeah, God. I know. It's not a great one, but I always <laughs> liked it. So anyway, I think our Paola Paola thing can be settled with this and we could just leave it alone and just say, you know, there's two different ways to go there. So that's where it's going to be. The left, best part so. of this was how excited you were to tell this joke. I know. I did the look on your joke. face the I whole did. time. I you did. Loved I really, it. I just love that so joke. I love that you love it. I know. There's a joke I tell about a duck that goes into a bar looking for grapes, but Lisa will not oh, let me tell that. I, I heard that on a commercial years ago yeah, and I always like cite it. favorite joke. It was the, the staples? It's, it's like, I don't know. Oh, the nails. Yeah, about the nails. Oh, well, I heard it was staples, but I think oh, it was the same thing. Same, it's okay. the same joke, but yeah. You got any grapes? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 uh, I've taught Lux that joke. That's amazing. Uh, so, yeah. But she doesn't tell it very well yet. So I'm going to give her some time. <laughs> She'll get there. Yeah. That's like so. akin to buying her like a really loud, annoying toy. Yeah, it is. It really <laughs> is because she loves to go around and go, hey, mom, 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 got any grapes? And so, yeah. At least she doesn't that? appreciate that much. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so moving on, we had a couple of listener reviews on oh, iTunes. Yeah. Which we do that now? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I yeah. Why we not? We did that later. Yeah. No. Okay. Well, we do that. We do this now. We oh, do ghost we other talk stuff later. Gotcha. Ghost writers later. Gotcha. Um, All right. It's like ghostly talk. That's a different. <laughs> you should <laughs> check all different. You show. should check that but out. You should too. check that out. Uh, so yeah, listen to review uh, one. It just says awesome with two exclamation points from noob chicken. Hey. So, Simple. I'll take it. Simple is good. Concise, yes. Uh, The next one says, I always look forward to this podcast. I get so happy when I get a notification that there's a new one available. I absolutely love the story at the beginning and the banter at the end. It's a perfect mix of true crime and ghost stories. Loving it. A cringeworthy banter? Well, they left that part out. Awesome. So thank you. But this is from uh, Little Dutch Girl 240. I love the screen names. So I know. They can just be whatever they want. So thank you so much for the reviews. It really helps people find our show. It helps our egos. (laughs) Um, and it's all the above. So, Hey everyone, we have to take a quick break to listen to a word from our sponsors. So people are always coming up to me and saying, Cody, how do I listen to your podcast? I got this phone just to take pictures of ghosts and I don't, I don't know what else to do with it. So I tell them you can check us out on Stitcher Premium. And right now you can get a free month trial by going to stitcherpremium.com and using the promo code hauntings and if you're looking for some new true crime and you can check out the true crime garage off the record the latest project from true crime garage host nick and the captain you join them each week as they revisit some of the most haunting cases they've covered to date this is a compilation of hidden treasures a chance to dive deeper discuss new theories and get updates on your favorite episodes of true crime garage or if you're looking for something a little different, comedian Chris Gethard's beautiful stories from anonymous people opens the phone line to one anonymous caller, and Chris can't hang up first no matter what. From shocking confessions and family secrets to philosophical discussions and shameless self-promotion, anything can and will happen. Stitcher Premium also has new ad-free episodes of cult favorite My Favorite Murder and hit shows from the podcast network like Cults and Conspiracy Theories and my personal favorite podcast, How Did This Get Made? Plus thousands of hours of original content, early access to new releases, exclusive bonus episodes and archives, and hundreds of stand-up comedy albums for when you need a laugh. And of course, like I said, our show is also available every week with Stitcher Premium. To get a free trial of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code HAUNTINGS. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code HAUNTINGS. So, moving on. Yes. Summer of 1914. Yes. Agent, and we've got a little mixture of time periods. Yes, <laughs> of, yeah. co- of course. Yeah. Agent 33, yeah, huh. James Wilkerson, uh, was wreaking havoc in Iowa, and things were not going well for the Moore murder case. Right. 
Reverend Kelly had already been arrested earlier that year in South Dakota. He was charged with using the U.S. mail to try and entice a teenage girl to pose nude for him as inspiration for a religious book that I wonder he was what writing. what kind of religious book this was. <laughs> I, 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 I read that, and I always wonder what kind of religious book that was so, meant to be. Well, I'm, I'm curious. Are you, are you saying that a man of faith uses <laughs> position of power to sexually assault a young person? I know. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It is. And also, if you're mad about the jab we just took at clergymen, you fucking should be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, he's later transferred to a a federal mental asylum in Washington, D.C. for evaluation. And interest in Kelly's connection to the Velisca murders was then renewed. Um, can you tell me a little bit about <laughs> what Kelly did in jail? Well, I don't. I mean, there were a lot of rumors. I'm not sure. I mean, there was a, a his cellmate claimed that he was groping other prisoners. And I don't know if he was offering, you know, things in the shower room right. or, or what, but that, that was the kind of stuff that they claimed. Uh, but he also, but it might've been, you know, because he was on a rant and he was begging people to kill him and, you know, it might've been some way he was trying to just antagonize somebody sure. to, to take him out. So I yeah, the, the begging to be killed Thanks. thing was very, uh, weird, but it, it said the report claimed he also attempted suicide. So it seems like yeah. this guy's just all over the oh, place. He's just everywhere. Um, and you know, then they take him to the asylum and, you know, then they are trying to, um, you know, evaluate whether or not he's crazy. And, um, they thought, well, I know how we can fix this. Let's have a reporter come in and interview him. I don't think having anyone talk to this guy is no. a good idea ever. So no, not for him. It's not good for any of his cases is this talking. So then the, the reporters came in and heard about how he was, you know, um, he had become a target of the investigation because, you know, he was a crack detective. Right. He had all these theories and now the real killer was after him, you know, and it's just the guy was nuts. I mean, he was just nuts. And but then I love the part about how he said that, you know, well, he didn't like the interviews. Or with the way the stories went, because they made him look crazy. Right. You think? <laughs> yeah. You know? Anything about you is going to make yeah, you look crazy. No kidding. Everyone <laughs> thinks you're crazy. Uh, so Frank Jones took that summer to write an article about Iowa road law. Yeah. I really, I really didn't want to include that. And I thought, man. Just the contrast, <laughs> It's just though. so boring. The I just, the, the how do you even make this interesting? But I thought, well, as long as we know that, that this has become an going to become an issue in his campaign. I thought it was worthy of mention, but believe me, I actually cut that down because yeah, yeah I had like more information on what the article was actually about. <laughs> I was going to say, no one cares about this. Yes, I like, cannot leave that in there. I need so. to know about yeah. the bills going <laughs> right, into this exactly. and how so, it impacts. Yeah. Truckers. It was enough to know that, you know, I just thought it was far. I thought it was interesting that people would find that, you know, they were arguing about who was going to, pave roads right i mean it's just because these are things we take for granted now you know sure and so, and so i thought well maybe people will think this is interesting i'll leave it in and yeah i just i needed to tone it down well it's, so, it's good yeah, to know what it's some editing it's good to know what everybody's do, like where all our players are and the contrast of their summers <laughs> yeah, you know right, right. um but wilkerson spent his time uh refining <laughs> his theory implicating uh -huh. jones over and over and this seemed to cause a divide amongst people yes and it's, which is still there. Still there. Oh, oh right, yeah. right. Because you yeah, mentioned I mean, some it's people still. And, what, I went 115 years later. Yeah. People are still, people still think Frank Jones had something to do with these murders. Doesn't matter what's coming later. They still think he right. had something to do with it. And I wrote this question uh, before I saw or read the, um, the other part of the, the next episode. But just to be clear, he didn't 
Wilkerson didn't think Frank Jones was the actual murderer. Right. But he just that he, he hired it. Right. Okay. So yeah. I just wanted to clarify that. But then another major axe slaying occurred that summer, and it was the final crime that can be connected to Billy the Axe Man. Yes. That's July 5th. Jacob Mislick, yes. his wife Mary, daughter Martha, and their infant daughter Marie were murdered in their beds in the small community of Blue Island, located south of Chicago. Wilkerson notices the connections, but he tries to then say that Jones is connected to both of these crimes. Right, right. Well, yeah. I, I don't even know where, why he... I mean, I think that... You know, when the police initially suspected uh, William Mansfield of having something to do with his own crime, and he's like, well, you know, if he murdered his own family, and this case is so similar to Villisca, then he must have been involved in this too. Sure. So let's see how we can uh, connect the dots here and make it so that he killed everybody in Villisca, even though there was absolutely zero evidence pointing to that idea. Yeah. Just he other had a, than what he made up. He had a bad idea, but then just like doubled down mm-hmm. on exactly. it. Exactly. And so more than two years passed between the murders in Villisca and Blue Island in 1914. This was the longest period of time between the, the murders during the spree that was perpetrated by Billy yeah. the Axe. And there may be more in there somewhere. I still think there is. Mm-hmm. I just haven't found them. I've never been able to find them, but I still think there could be. It seems like a long unless, time. Unless, unless he went to jail or something. He was locked up for some reason, sure. which is possible. This is somebody who was riding the rails and, um, you know, traveling by train and and. I'm 99% sure he wasn't buying a ticket. Mm -hmm. So he could have been arrested for trespassing in the rail yards. Um, He could have could have been beaten up by a railroad detective because they would do that. I mean, they carried clubs and guns, but they usually carried clubs and they would beat the hell out of guys they found on their ride in the boxcars. And because, you know, this is pre Great Depression when that became a much more acceptable thing to do when people were all broke and starving and didn't have any money during the depression, people would hop a freight train, but people were still doing it back at that time, but it wasn't as widely accepted. So there could be a lot of, I mean, this is all speculation, but there could have been a lot of reasons why, you know, he disappeared for, you know, two years. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, I, I know you've done a ton of research on this and after his last crime that you were able to figure out did you then like look at recent arrest records or death certificate like try to kind of figure out why he stopped i mean i know that's a there's huge too many task people. yeah just too much you there's know there's too much going on for I mean, that. you're talking about an entire the entire midwest i mean you could look at every single death record but how would you know right you know what i mean if there's um, no other connection i haven't ever found any identical crimes after Blue Island, mm-hmm. um, but I still think there could be something. I mean, there, there still may be some in there. Sure. Um, and I know that there have been some, again, speculation from other sources that, you know, the murders did continue, that there were others, but none of them link up. Mm-hmm. None of them not, they don't really fit. You can't take every single axe murder that's happened and go, oh, it must be the same guy because they killed somebody with an axe. Well, that doesn't, you know. Sure. Um, it has to match. There has to be some you know, modus operandi there that connects these crimes when all of the ones that we have talked about in the season are all connected by almost identical methods. This is where it stops. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't find any that is close enough. I mean, he refined things a little bit during this few years of this spree, but really he went from like that early murder in Texas, which wasn't 
which was really close, but not exact. So many of these then that followed as, as we've talked about were exact. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just couldn't find anything after that. Yeah. No, I mean, Hey, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah. I figured out his method. Um, so, okay. But so a guy like this though, he doesn't just stop committing these murders on his own. I feel like he had to have been locked up or he had to have died or something. And he didn't just quit, uh, you know, out of having a conscience. There are, there are several things that could have happened. Um, yeah, no, I'm sure he didn't just quit. He could have been arrested for something else or for another murder that never made the connection with the others. Although that seems unlikely. Yeah. Um, more likely, I think, is that he ended up in an insane asylum. Mm. It's a possibility. Maybe he just finally lost it. But not necessarily because he's been so organized up until this point. Right. More likely, um, he was either locked up for another crime or he died. And I think that the likeliest reason this stopped is because he was killed probably jumping a freight train. Mm. So many accidents happened in rail yards back in those days. I mean, there are just lists and lists and lists of people who were on trains or, you know, fell off a train, got run over by a train. You know, I mean, it was a dangerous job back then, let alone, you know, hiding out, jumping onto the, you know, to passing freight trains and that kind of stuff. My guess would be that's what happened to him as that he was killed while riding the rails and you know nobody knew who he was i mean probably no identification back then i mean you know nobody needed you need a driver's license so i mean nobody would know who he was and he's probably buried in a pauper's grave somewhere and we'll we'll never ever ever know who he was yeah well that brings up a good point um i know you you wrote this book obviously murder in the beds but you've written a hundred books plus and so I, I know that you're not just obsessed about this topic, but if you had to pick like one crime to solve or know like what happened, like, I mean, you know, Jack the Ripper, we don't know who that was or because it was not H.H. H. Holmes um, or, you know, this one. It, it, how, how does this rank in your list of like things that bug you and you wish you could understand? It's pretty high on the list. Um, it's in the top 10 for sure. Not number uh, one, though. No, it's not number one. The Black Dahlia is number one. Oh, OK. Uh, that's the one I'd really like to know. Uh, someday I'll know. When I'm dead, I will know who it was. Uh, I just know it wasn't George Hodel. But I will know someday who it was. Um, and, but this is pretty high on the list, too. I mean, it's 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 one of the top ones. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, someday I'll have to bug you about that whole list and we can yeah, just do it. I want to know what happened to the Grimes sisters. I want to know, you know, who was Jack the Ripper. Um, I want to know, you know, who this guy was. You know, there's 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 plenty of things yeah. out there for me. Well, hopefully there's no shortage of material. So we, mm-hmm. as long as people keep doing terrible things, we still have a podcast. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so let's move on now to talking more about Blue Island in 1914. So. Established in the 1830s, the town was originally a way for settlers basically traveling from Indiana. In 1850s, Blue Island became known as the brick-making capital of the world. Yeah, which, everybody's got to have a claim to I that. know, right? I was like, eh, okay, cool, I, I guess. Now, that's a lot of bricks, though. That is a lot of bricks. Yeah, they made yeah. a lot of bricks. Once they started kind of yeah, ramping that up with the automation stuff. Or like, that's they, insane. Yeah. Like 150 million or something? Yeah, so, something like that. That's a, yeah. that's a ton of bricks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I did, sorry, didn't, Good even, one. didn't even mean to make it. Okay, um, so <laughs> even today you said it's a busy hub for railroad lines uh, running in Chicago and beyond. And on one night, uh, July 5th, 1914, our killer stepped off a freight train, Blue Island, and left a bloody, left behind 
four victims, um, wiping out an entire family. And again, the axe had been left in the bedroom where the two young, uh, with two women and an infant slept. It was covered in blood and taken from neighbor's backyard and brought into the house by the killer. After slaying each of the victims with the flat side of an axe, he pulled up the bed sheets over the bodies, hiding them from view, just as he'd done in all the other cases. Closed all the windows. Right. Covered so, all the windows. So everything to indicate that this is our guy. Uh, the bodies were discovered by uh, Mislik's son, Jacob Mislik Jr., and he later told the papers, I, I pulled back a part of the bed sheet, and there lay my mother, her head cut and bleeding. I pulled the sheet back a little further and saw the body of my little niece. Her head had been severed. Beside her lay my sister. I'm not sure severed. I think it was beaten to a pulp so That's that it came kind, loose from Kind of what I was, was wondering. Yeah, because again, it was a flat side of the axe. Sure. And but I, I think that... Her head was just pretty much gone. Yeah. You know. Th- thank you for that image. Um, she too was dead. So I take another bite of pizza. That's okay. something we were talking about at work the other day. Can you, you know, people are like, can you eat during horror movies? I was like, yeah, I can eat during anything. I don't care. It just yeah. doesn't, doesn't phase me. Well, I was doing a dinner with um, dinner with the dead a couple weeks ago. And uh, I started talking about how they were embalming bodies. And I said, oops. I guess I should have. We just finished dinner. I oh, guess yeah. I should have warned everybody. But. Well, those people should know what they signed well, up Well, they should. So um, Anyway, okay, I got, got sidetracked. So I then, I then ran into the street and called several passerby who accompanied me upstairs. My father slept. He, too, was dead, having been killed in the same manner as the others. So this sucks for him. Really sad for the whole family. Uh, the newspapers were shouting the degenerate axe murder had struck again, claiming more innocent lives. So mm-hmm. people were putting this together. They were. They were. And somewhere along the line, it sort of fell off. And they right. stopped talking about it. Right. Yeah. It's. I don't. It's. It seems weird to me. Like that. People wouldn't. More people wouldn't be putting it together. I feel like it makes for a better story too. I know, but I'm telling you, James Wilkerson mm. just muddied the water so badly in Villisca, and as we're as we'll soon see. Yeah, we're going to talk about him a lot more yeah. next episode. And, and he sucks. You know, he just did so many things to screw things up that, like I said, 115 years later, people still believe him. Uh, some people in the area do. The way you laid it all out, especially the next episode, like he's such an asshole. Oh, yeah. Like I mean, he's complete creep. Doesn't doesn't care for. Yeah. He just wants to get rich. Doesn't care how many lives he ruins. I can't believe that people still believe that. But we'll we'll get into that. Um, so Chicago Assistant Chief of Police Herman Schultler. Schutler. Schutler. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Okay. That's a great name for him. Uh, Schutler, uh, a well-known, experienced officer who had been involved in the famous Lootgert. Yeah, the Lugert sausage factory case is a whole different story in itself. It's and just a I funny won't sentence. Go into huge detail about that. At some point, I'm sure we'll cover it on the podcast. You'll like the story. Okay. Uh, it was a German sausage maker who was a, who killed his wife in the sausage factory. Oh God! And even though he only dissolved her body in a sausage vat, he didn't actually turn her into sausage. But that's the story <laughs> that went around Chicago at the time. Of course, it is. Yeah, and there was even a. A rhyme like the Lizzie Borden one, yeah, about how he, you know, ground her up into sausage and all this kind of stuff. Uh. And um, anyway, he didn't, but he did dissolve her body in there. And this guy was kind of the lead investigator on it, so that's where he became famous. Got it. Okay, yeah. so he was a strong proponent of the idea that all yeah. the murders were connected. Right. Right. And he said the uh, the Mad Axe Man, whose trail of tragedy runs through five states, has reached the outskirts of Chicago. And he was quick to add that this most recent case, like all the others, occurred on a Sunday night. Is that a thread that I hadn't really noticed? Yeah, it's not all of them, but it is most of them. Is that because well, of— the Moors were, it was a Sunday night. Is it because of—well, right, right, because of the church and yeah. all that stuff. Is that because of some train schedule thing or coincidence? We don't we, know. That's but weird. My guess would be yes. That okay. It has something to do with the train schedules. Um, less trains on Sunday, 
comes into town and is able to get out a lot quicker on Monday because there's more trains. Got it. So that may have something to do with it. I'm not positive on that, but yes, most of them were on Sunday. Not yeah. all, but most. And that even more just worries me because, I mean, that shows intelligence, calculation. Oh, sure, yeah. You very know. organized. This guy was extremely organized. Uh, so the case went uh, rapidly went nowhere after that. On July 7th, Chicago police arrested a suspect named Peter Bucknow. Again, I don't listen to your, your recordings before we get to do these. Um, who had escaped for an insane asylum mm-hmm. in Kankakee? Yes, Kankakee. Kank- Kankakee. Yeah. Okay, Illinois. But he, he's cleared. Uh, Mansfield's also cleared. Yeah, he's only a, he's only a uh, escape from, you know, guy who escaped from a lunatic asylum, which right. is like the beginning of every, every terrible urban movie. legend story <laughs> about, you know, people with hooks for hands and everything else. Right. Yeah. Right. It was, it, keep but at kids, least he wasn't the killer. Keep kids off lover's lane. Yeah, exactly. So it'd be a year before another suspect emerged. So July 1915, a man was arrested in Buffalo, New York, who confessed to the Mislick murders. Yeah. His name was Kazmir Air Suzuki. Air Suzuki. Air Suzuki. Suzuki. Man, I can't even get it. It's a great motorcycle. A Polish immigrant who'd once boarded with the Mislick family. I'm curious, why do you think... Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Okay. Why do you oh, think? Starting to answer your question. Okay. I, no, I don't know if you know this question. Um, wh- why do you think people? What is it? Why do people make false confessions? Um, to get attention, usually. Yeah. Or even even Ill. negative attention. They're mentally ill. Well, it's attention. Yeah. I mean, it's just like you know, why is this kid being so bad? Well, got attention, didn't it? You know, it's the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same sort of thing. Uh, but I mean, this guy. Obviously, he had had mental problems, and he probably, a year went by, and he heard about it. He probably hadn't even heard about it because he'd just been kind of drifting around. Sure. Um, you know, back in those days, being put into an insane asylum doesn't mean you'd had any kind of hard diagnosis. I mean, it could have been, it could be, could have been for anything, but he obviously had some mental problems. Um, you know, he acted weird around Margaret and that kind of thing, and so, you know, they eventually kicked him out of the house. He probably heard about it later and said that he'd done it. Now, he didn't confess to all of the other murders, but there are a few people who think that because he was judged insane and was put away, that if he committed that murder, he must have committed the others. He's been named as a suspect, but I really don't think he was. I don't even think he committed that murder, Right, obviously. Right. So So he he was judged to be insane and incompetent to stand trial. Um, so back to the murder, the three women were killed in the downstairs bedroom and been struck in the head uh, two or three times with the head of the axe. Jacob Mislick was sleeping upstairs and killed in the same manner. The axe, so the axe was left behind in the downstairs bedroom. So does that mean he killed Jacob first, do you think? Like the mm-hmm. traditional, so, so he had to kind of probably search around right. a little bit, I would imagine. Right. So like, I'm just, I'm trying well, to. Well, they always went after the, or. I think in every case he went after the man first. Right. And which, yeah, which that would have been the greatest threat. Right. Well, so, so that he, makes sense. But that means he has to kind of search oh, yeah. around first, right? Mm-hmm. So that's creepy as hell. He's like looking he in. He probably crept through the house, found the women in one room, went looking for the man, found him upstairs, killed him, then came downstairs and killed the rest of them. Yeah. Um, so very the, calculated, you know, yeah. very organized, very, um, you know, had a certain process in mind. Same way right. with like, the Moors and Velisca killed JB first, 
You know, then he killed Sarah, then he killed the kids and didn't even know the Stillinger girls were downstairs right. until later. Yeah. And we yeah. see when he doesn't follow this pattern, like shit doesn't go 100 exactly. like, percent the way. Exactly. So that makes sense. Um, so the killer had entered the house by window and left the same way. All the curtains in the house have been pulled shut and all the bodies are covered with sheets. The only thing missing seemed to be an oil lamp with a glass chimney removed. Right. Uh, and nothing like this was found in the house. Well, well, sorry, there's a reason. There may be a reason for that. Sure. You have to remember, two more years have passed. The Moors just didn't happen to not have electricity. Oh, uh, okay. So they used oil lamps, but that was still only 1912. So there's a very good possibility that the Mislicks had electricity. Because right. now, and they're closer to Chicago, so sure. they're in a, still a small community cut off. It's separate from Chicago. It's a smaller community, but it's closer to a big city. So mm-hmm. there's a very good chance they had electricity. Got it. So he didn't, there were no oil lamps for him to find. Right. You know, so you have to look at that as a kind of a time break there where more and more people were getting electricity. I mean, it, remember in Villisca, some people had it, some people didn't, but it was still a far, small farm community. So more and more people were getting electricity, but the you know, the Moors didn't have it yet. Right. And in some of these other ones, I mean, that was a year and a year before, year before that. So, you know, uh, like the, the ones in um, Ellsworth, Kansas, they were very poor and lived in a very poor area. So they didn't have electricity. It wasn't an option, you know. So I think that makes a big difference sure. in this story. I think that's the reason we don't find the mirror or the uh, the glass chimney with the, you know, removed from the oil. Lamp. Right. Well, I've heard some people in Ellsworth, Kansas still don't have electricity. It's <laughs> possible, I guess. So, um, <laughs> so it was a Wilkerson. He refused to forget about uh, Mansfield, who was a, you said, a two time deserter from the military. Uh-huh. And he would make a perfect addition to the case that Wilkerson really wanted to build. And this was a case against Frank Jones. Right. And that's where we're going to pick up in two weeks as we dig deeper into the nefarious deeds that were carried out by Wilkerson. He's such a douche. Mm -hmm. During the investigation of Villisca murders, um, including his dubious work on another murder case that occurred in 1915. Yeah. It's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Our first message comes from Stephanie, and she's referencing episode 39. She said, hi, y'all. I love your podcast. I listen to it on uh, Google Music. I tell everybody. I have Alton on my list to visit, too. You shouldn't do that. It's not worth it. Um, <laughs> Don't say that. No, it's, it's, a great, it's a great little town. I love it. It sucks me, it sucks me in all the time, and I can't escape it. Um, do you think he, she, left the back door open for the dog? Yeah, you know what? It's the one about, it's the Ellsworth, Kansas one. And the na- neighbor lady found the dog, yeah. and the door was open. It wasn't locked like most of them were. What episode was that then? I don't know, but it wasn't 39. Okay, so we think that the episode you're talking about is the Ellsworth, Kansas one, um, which I don't think is 39. But anyway, there's a lot of, there's a lot of unlocked doors in this story. So, um, yeah. In that, yeah, in that one, because that was the one where the, um, the city marshal guy heard the scratching and the yes. noises. And then the family, it was the We the almost had the double the header. that were killed. Right. Um, oh, double and, header. I haven't made that joke yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that, I mean, that, I mean, that's certainly possible that the, because the dog kept coming down to the neighbor lady's right. house. But didn't they just not lock their doors in general? Lassie, yeah. I don't think a lot of people lock their doors, but I think the, her point is, is that it was odd that the door was locked or, oh. was, or normally it was locked in a lot of these cases that when they came to, to investigate, the police would find the door had been jammed shut or locked. 
And then that one, it was wide open, remember? Because I think we commented right. about that at the okay, time. Okay, yeah, okay, yep, it's all and coming I back. And I think the problem was, and then, and she may be right, it may have something to do with the dog, but or the door may have just been left unlocked, and the, that's how the dog kept coming and going all the time. Right. You know, come and follow me, the showman's have fallen down the well. Right, kind of thing. right. Yeah. Yep, yep, Timmy's in the well. Okay, uh-huh. yeah, great question. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Um, and another thing, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Mark Voorhees. We've mentioned him a couple times on here. He's, he's had a couple questions, um, but... He wrote in a really long frequent flyer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, He wrote in a really long email expressing a lot of thoughts about the podcast. And he and I have just been kind of corresponding. Um, Did they all say it sucked? No, it was just questions for me. Um, And I just I just want to say he and I have come to an understanding. And I feel like I have a friend that I don't actually know, but that I kind of know. And I just wanted to say thank you. And I wish more people could say like, hey, here are some things I disagree about. Let's talk about them and not just like be jerks. And Mark, (laughs) Mark is definitely one of those people who was able to talk to me and have a dialogue. And I just wanted to give a shout out and say thanks for, for writing in. Cool. Okay. And as we have mentioned many times before, we have a, a Patreon channel where you can go and donate. There's very different uh, levels of, of tiers. And so you can get things like uh, bonus episodes. So if you want to hear this podcast every week, you can hear a little bonus episode in, in between weeks and you can get um, sign up for discounts and T-shirts and things like that, access to a Facebook group bunch of other stuff like that and so we've had some people sign up for the patreon lately and so i wanted to give some quick shout outs uh to to david christopher david again and amy so thank you so much for signing up we really really appreciate it and if you're interested in signing up and seeing what rewards we have you can check that out at patreon.com slash american hauntings all right well i guess we should wrap this up and uh, I will say again, thanks for listening. Uh, we hope that you'll share the podcast with your friends. Uh, if you have anybody that you know who has not listened to the podcast yet and think that they will like it, please steer them our way. Leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, if it's uh, you know if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on the show. Yeah. Um, if it's a bad review, well, we haven't gotten too many of those, so I guess sure. I, I'll usually just make fun of those. We'll, we'll um, talk about so, them behind yeah, your back, but right, you will exactly. never get public recognition. Right, your name will never be on it. But anyway, um, thanks for listening, and um, that really helps us out when you leave us some reviews. So, And that's it. And this is the very end of the show, and we're not doing anything else. All that, right. The end. This episode all of the right. American Honest Podcast is written thanks by Troy Taylor. We'll talk to you again Produced and edited weeks. by me, Cody Beck. And in each episode, we try just, to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please join in to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books and information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. Remember, if you love the show, American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference coming up. Up, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. And if you're one of those people who wish we had a new show every week, you already said this well, once. you can have it again. You have the chance to support the podcast by checking our this Patreon is why this page. Is so long. As a supporter, you can get bonus episodes of the show, T-shirts, great stuff in the mail, and more. We're extremely excited about producing more extremely shows and better equipment. Really? <laughs> I'm pretty excited. Okay. And with your help, we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreoncom Hauntings. You can also find your host on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, be sure to pass them along. You got anything else? You good? No, nope. I'm good. All right. Good. Until next time. Goodbye. I so long. Off like a half hour ago. See you later.
Thank you.